When I got the I Love You email from Ernst and & Young and my editor, none of them would ever tell me they loved me. So the first thing that grabbed me was the subject line. And I realized we were dealing with the first ever email born virus. I'm excited to introduce our next guest, Deb Radcliffe, a veteran cybersecurity writer, analyst, and advisor. When I was starting my PR career at Schwartz Communications in the mid-90s, we were both getting immersed in cybersecurity. Deb was the first person to recognize cybersecurity as a reporting beat 25 years ago. Her articles are cited in numerous research papers and college textbooks. She won two Neil Awards and was runner-up for a third. In 2016, she became the editor-in-chief of the SANS Analyst Program and in 2018 was promoted to creative director. She currently runs her own cybersecurity consulting business. To top it off, she's working on a trilogy about cyber criminals called Breaking Backbones, from which she's also creating a screenplay. And I'm not surprised early reviewers are calling her first book gripping and fun. Since we had so much to talk about, this is episode one of two. So let's get started. Deb, welcome to the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Aloha, Davida. Thanks for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. Before we get into the down and dirty, I do want to reminisce a little about how we first met and set the stage here for our listeners. You know, meeting the guys at Accent Technologies, now Semantic, of course, something about a magazine and with a car. The year was about 1996. I was starting my PR career and you were starting your career as a cyber journalist. Kevin Mitnick was on the run. And you wrote an article titled Barbarians at the Firewall for Byte Magazine. Did I get all that right? In, in a bit out of order. My career started in 1995-96 researching Kevin Mitnick for a best-selling book, The Fugitive Game, that was developed by John Littman. I ran out and got all the street notes for him while he stayed behind and handled calls coming from Kevin Mitnick to a payphone. And they were doing that to avoid being listened to by the FBI. So Littman needed someone with feet on the ground to go validate or uh, debunk uh, Mitnick's claims. So I got sent all up and down the West Coast between Washington, where he applied for a job at Microsoft, and L.A., uh, where he had some pretty shady family members and friends acting like they were on his side when they were really working against him. And all the while, you know, then Kevin got arrested and it was going to be an article and they turned it into a book. And then I got really busy running around and finishing up the research there. Then I wrote for Byte Magazine, my first article ever for a computer magazine. And I was trying to get news of the Internet coming into business offices into publication because I'm a journalism major. I'm not a technology major, but I always took the crime beat and I could totally understand what was going to happen with cyber. Cybercrime. We had Kevin Mitnick, who wasn't actually as technically savvy as everyone gave him credit for. It was mostly his creepy friends that were doing stuff, and then they were glad to see Kevin go to jail for it. Kevin's skill was in social engineering, and that is why I got so scared, because we have an internet, which is a human not present environment going into the business offices and homes very soon. At the time we were on dial-up modems, I knew the modems were going away shortly. There would start being direct connections in. And Kevin Mitnick could literally talk a girl out of her password by saying, I'm Tom Bodette. 
all that commercials going on in the background. We'll leave the lights on for you, right? So that scared me. And so when Byte Magazine said, fine, we'll take a story from you, from you. And this was my first article after finishing the research for John Littman's best-selling book, The Fugitive Game. I said, sure, I'll do the story. And I hung up the phone and I called this brand new company called Microsoft. And I said, what's a firewall? When I was done with that story, the FBI called and asked if they could use it for training materials for their new field office in San Francisco. And I laughed and said, sure, but where were you when I needed to talk to you about Kevin Mitnick? And they hung up. They were extremely rude when I was down in the offices in LA trying to get them to talk to me. I hung out, I stalked them, I chased them through lobbies. It was bad, but we're all working together now. But back in the olden days, there were no law enforcement agencies and that, that was literally their, their first field office. So all that happened by the time I met you. Then I got a job at Software Magazine, and that was kind of a scary magazine. The editor and the business manager, they were really mean to the writers, and I couldn't let on that I really didn't know anything about tech. So I faked my way through all these articles, but they assigned me one where I got to go across the country and write about cybersecurity. And this was 1996 or 97. And that's when I met you, Davida. I, I saw this company that was doing something new called intrusion detection, whatever that is. And I'm like, okay, this looks interesting. I'll call her. And then you put me in touch with these guys that basically changed my life. I ended up winning a Neil Award for that story, and it was because of the contacts you gave me from Accent Technologies. And that's where you and I go back to. That is where. I was just new a year into this PR, tech PR thing. Accent was one of my first clients, of course, for our our listeners. Accent is now Symantec. I don't know how many iterations, but there was some pretty cool people there. And uh we, you know, we're learning about the beginnings of cybersecurity and what this all was. Um, one thing I'd like to share before we go on is I love one of the stories that I've heard of how you knew you were, wanted to be a journalist. And I believe it had something to do with a high school teacher who didn't give you a good grade on a paper. I'd love for you to tell that story just because I think it's a really good lesson for people. Well, it was actually two high school teachers. In my freshman year, I wrote a paper about how badly we screwed the Native Americans and all the land deals and the, the trail of tears and all the horrors we did to these people after they submitted. And he was a redneck and he absolutely hated my paper. I swear it drove him to drink. He was screaming at me in his red lines. I'm like 15 years old. I don't know. All I know is I pissed off someone and only a good writer can do that. He gave me an A for execution and a C for content because he didn't agree with me. Then I moved on to my second year English teacher and I got straight A's on every paper. And I didn't do so well in math, by the way, but English was my thing. Math, I had to go into remedial every day before school just to get through algebra. But with writing, it was just like second nature to me. And my English teacher gave me a B plus for my semester grade. And I was storming in there. I was really mad at her. She was a bit of a novelty. She was the only gay teacher in school. And she also taught drama. And I thought she was super cool. And so I go running in here. And I'm really kind of afraid of her. But I stormed in her classroom. And I go, why did you give me a B plus when I got straight A's? And she looked at me really seriously through these little wireline glasses. And she goes, because you're better than a straight A student. I want to see you work harder. She goes, you're writing these papers in your sleep. 
So the next semester, she gave me an A grade for my grade, but it was just to challenge me. And she told me when I left her classroom that uh, she will come out of her grave and uh, attack me and shake me into writing if I don't grow up to be a writer. But I didn't take the straight pathway there. I went into technical publication, but on the wrong side, word processing at Ford Aerospace. And it took me going back to college while I was having all my babies to get my degree in journalism and actually start in the cybercrime reporting area, probably when I was about 33 years old. That was the heat of it all. Like cyber is arguably our biggest threat. I mean, some may say no, I, I think it's it's arguably one of our biggest threats, and whether from outside sources or insiders, and as long as we rely on tech, there'll be a security threat out there. So one thing I think is interesting is I think we remember the victims more than the names of the threats now. Like we'll say Cap One, that's the victim or the one that you know it'll call they'll call themselves victim. Yet when it was novel back in the day, as we call it. We recall the big viruses of the 90s, the I love you virus and the Yahoo hack, for which parentheses, I have a special affection as my team at Schwartz earned a PR award for rapid response for the Yahoo hack, which was a hoax, I guess. So you saw something early on. And what did those big viruses teach you early on that led you to how you perceive and think about security now? Well, it made me realize that when they were accusing me of hyperbole, they were far, I was far from it. I was under-reporting the threat at the time. So when I got the I love you email from Ernst & Young and my editor and like a dozen other people that I do business with, none of them would ever tell me they love me. So the first thing that grabbed me was the subject line. And I realized we were dealing with the first ever email born virus. Maybe there were others before it, but this one was massive. It got everybody. Everybody I know had an, at least one email in their inbox that said, I love you. It's the first time that that had ever happened. And I... I think I might still have been at Software Magazine at the time. It was like 97 or 98. So that was a real eye-opener. But also those people you introduced me to, Davida, your team introduced me to the cult of the dead cow. And that was very eye-opening because I followed them. I became, uh, you know, kind of the in reporter with the group. And there was Mudge, there was Weld, there was Del Chai, uh, there was Hobbit. And these guys were making a big splash. They were coming out with, the first thing they came out with was polymorphism. So signatures for antivirus were already getting kind of heavy and cumbersome and you had to update them every day. But we weren't getting new, you know, a thousand new viruses a day. We may only be getting a couple new viruses a day back then. Then back orifice introduced polymorphism, where all you have to do is change a parameter in the code, and the it's the brand new virus to the antivirus mechanisms, and they weren't catching it. And that was one of the most chilling moments of my career. I realized, okay, antivirus is already overworked and overwhelmed, and they can do this. There is no way antivirus can catch this. And then we, of course, started seeing browser-based attacks and memory-based attacks, and antivirus kept trying to get caught up with the latest and greatest trends. But that was the beginning of me realizing we were going to need a lot more than antivirus and network security to protect our organizations and our home users. So I started an online Crime Bites blog, and that's to help the home users mostly. Um, and I just kept in the field of basically ahead of the trends, 
people are writing about a lot of this stuff now, like it's new and all the technology to do this was going on in the late 90s. I've said this too. I'll, I'll listen to like application security. This isn't new. We just call it something different. I find that whether it's analysts and all, with all due respect to Gardner IDC and all the, all the, all the analysts, they kind of put a new wrapper around it. But some of this stuff is maybe just more sophisticated. Is that right? Just a variation on the theme, but maybe more sophisticated. Yeah, we may be on next gen, next gen, next gen. Like now it's uh, secure DevOps or DevSecOps, whatever you call the buzz term. But working for SANS Institute in charge of an analyst program, it was rather frustrating for us as leaders and the analysts, uh, the the writers, that you know we were being forced to have to follow some of these Gardner quadrants on the technology because it's all sort of a game, you know, yeah, I guess buyers need to kind of know what group the tech is in. Is it endpoint? Is it network? Is it this? Is it that? I just feel bad because they have to use so many layers nowadays. You just raised a really good point. We've been the RSA, you more than I. It's miles and miles of conference and product. And I just don't know how a company chooses how to put together a security program for its company. And uh, whether it's too much or too many vendors out there doing the same thing or not really getting to the point of it because are we that much more secure with all of these solutions? I don't know, but certainly a lot of them and they're trying to hit every part of the system or network to protect it or mitigate risk. Are we doing it right? I don't think so. I don't think we've been doing it right since the very beginning. The journalists and the speakers literally laughed me out of the room in 1998 when I said, it seems like maybe we should change IP. They're like, oh, God, the whole world's already on IP. We're never going to change it. Because that, to me, was like the underpinning of all our problems. Internet protocol says, you know, every device out there says, hi, here's my signal. Here I am. Come and greet me. Come and connect to me. It's so trusting. And yet Kevin Mitnick could manipulate anything in anyone into doing anything because everybody and every technology is trusting. So there is a lot of layers that we've tried to put around the user, around the endpoint, around the connections, around the access, around the network itself and out into the cloud and everywhere. And I think it's getting worse. I think it's getting harder to protect. And I'll give you an example. Recently, I was forced to download PDF of Acrobat's more sophisticated applications so I could sign some documents for work. Well, it started deleting the documents off my hard drive, like a pre-filled out W-9 for when I'm working as a contractor. All I have to do is forward it and it's easy. Well, now it's blank and it's making me go to the cloud to get it. And I didn't even realize they were putting my data in the cloud. Here we're filled out W-9s, job applications where they're asking for my bank account information. And I didn't even know this was in a cloud. You've got the same issue with other apps that you're using that are putting things out in the cloud that you may or may not know about. And Apple is basically forcing me to pay a subscription plan to their cloud or I can't get my data. And that's when I bought my last computer. So we have, as users, end users, have completely lost control of our data. People are using Facebook as their sign-on, and I can tell you, my sister got creamed by that because all her other accounts that she was using Facebook as a sign-on automatically started getting corrupted 
um, she was getting notifications that her Wayfair account was someone was trying to buy $500 gift cards out of her Wayfair account with her credit card. And someone else was using her um, Facebook account to try to do an online dating thing. And all these girls were writing in and it was her account. It was a mess. And it, you know, almost broke her to try to put everything back together. But I literally had to tell her to get a new phone and start fresh with everything, delete all her accounts and start over. And that's what she ended up having to do. And it was because Facebook tried to make it easy for you. Just sign in with Facebook, sign up with Facebook. I did a couple of those and I cleaned them out before that happened to my sister because I realized Facebook wanted to sign into that account that I just told you had all my financial data in it. They wanted, they offered me a Facebook login to that. We want all the access to the Facebook and the Twitter and shopping online, but we want our privacy and we want our data secure. But we don't have personal IT people, whereas in businesses they do. I don't think they understand where all their data is in the cloud either. I felt really good working at Sands because they gave me a computer and they controlled everything. And I knew my Mac was their computer and they had it configured so that my data on their computer is not going out into the cloud. I have not figured out how to do that on my Mac. So the corporations have a better chance at covering some of the gaps, but the problem is there's always gaps and one little gap, like the AWS cloud is huge right now. And there have been so many violations happening with the, the buckets and the permissions and the credentials in those buckets that have allowed tons of large breaches occur through that now. The re most recent one, it was through a travel site and it's a place we all do business with and the credit cards, the CVV numbers, everything for millions of people exposed through a misconfigured AWS bucket. So that's just one little thing. And I've talked to a lot of CISOs who say they cannot track their AWS buckets. They feel very worried that all it takes is one small vulnerability on their side and they know they have them. They know they don't know where they all are. They're trying, but think about the scope of the job. So they're worried about their jobs. They're worried about liability. Now that Joe Sullivan got charged criminally for refusing to report a secondary breach that he thought he had under control and it was uh, paying off the hackers, but everybody pays ransomware. So it was one of those really gray areas and they want to put him in jail for it. They want to give him five years and he's contesting it. And I don't think the case has any merit because they're using a really old law. I forget what it's called, but it's about aiding and abetting a criminal. And so by paying off the hackers, they're trying to put him in jail. Well, what about ransomware payout? Corporations have these huge issues. On one side, they're the victims. And on the other side, when they're victimized, the government and people who are their customers are treating them like they are the criminals with um, lawsuits from the government and lawsuits from private attorneys representing people. So I wouldn't even want to be in business if I had to go up against all of that. Back in the day, and you had mentioned Microsoft at one time, Everyone had their eyes on Dell and DEC and Microsoft, Sun, Wang, IBM. They were at odds. So I guess maybe the impetus to crack that code is just now with Google and Amazon and the big guys, the big cloud, to get the keys to the kingdom. Or like you said, in, in one sense, it's misconfigured, but in another sense, are they just being targeted more? And are we seeing the big companies getting targeted more than small companies? Or is that a fly-by-night assumption? 
Okay, so the criminals are going to go where the money is. But the, in the olden days, the criminals were going where the, they weren't even criminals. They were white, uh, white hat and gray hat hackers were my sources. And you notice I haven't called a hacker a criminal yet. Because to me, hackers are researchers and criminals are doing it for financial gain and, and seriously violating the law. Hackers may be trespassing while criminals are stealing the data and then turning it around and using it to make monetize off of by making fake credit cards or whatever they're going to do with the data. So back in the day, Sun Microsystems and was you know, just coming up as the main Unix vendor. And Unix was much more tested than Microsoft and Windows. So everybody was beating up on Microsoft at the time, proving all the hackers. In fact, they, I took some hackers to a bar called Knock Knock in San Francisco. I had to bring a friend with me because it was in such a bad part of town. And my friend was Latino. So he brought his knife, you know, and he walked me in and they wanted me to buy their beers. And I was so poor. I had like $29 on me. I spent everything I could to get them the Guinness, you know, they were just blasting Microsoft in the, in that meeting. There were like five hackers. I, I forget what group they were from, but they were one of the deeper groups and they were based in San Francisco. You know, they were saying people are stupid. They are going to put this in businesses and it's totally vulnerable. Look, here's how we get in through this way. Here's how we get a Trojan horse in. Look, we can just go into a null session and look at everything. No one even knows we're there. We can't touch anything, but we can see everything and write down passwords and then go back in, you know? And so at the time I was writing a lot of articles saying, you guys, maybe you should use Unix as your business workhorse. You shouldn't really be going to Microsoft, but it's like throwing seeds into the wind and hoping some of them will take. Microsoft did its thing and became the dominating vendor for business uses. And now we have all of these problems. I'm not saying we wouldn't have had these problems if we stayed with Unix, but it's just interesting how fast that happened. Cisco became one of the companies that people like to beat up on too. And I have a, a really great story about that. Um, it was, I forget what year at DevCon, but one of the researchers was ready to present a vulnerability in Cisco and Cisco got cold feet and tried to pull him off the stage at the last minute. He quit his job and refused and gave the presentation and everybody recorded it. Meanwhile, the feds came in and tore the Cisco presentation out of the conference guides. It was unbelievable. So Jennifer, the, I'm getting her last name, but she's the hacker attorney. We just love her. She stood there in front of all the cops and said, are you Cisco's lackeys? You know, she was mad. That was a case where a vendor did it wrong. Microsoft used to be perceived that way. And then they started hosting hacker parties in private cabanas at the pool and bringing the hackers over at Black Hat and winning them over and using them as resources. And for the most part, the relationship between hackers and Microsoft has really changed for the better. We've seen that with Cisco after they really blew it. You know, it, it seems like every big company had to blow it once or twice and then come back and say, okay, show us what our vulnerabilities are. We want to fix them. Well, that actually segued beautifully into bug bounties and, and the benefits of that sort of thing where you're saying, okay, is that a way to deflect cyber criminals? It's saying it's, it's not as much fun if we're letting you do it. And it can be very lucrative for someone, but it's helping the greater good. Is that where that sort of program came from? 
I don't know if it came from that, but it sure legitimizes what the hackers have been doing. I think that that's good because it puts it under a more protective umbrella. The hackers are protected. The companies that they're doing the research against are protected. There's usually a middleman, like I think Hacker One is one of them, where they will make sure all the rules are followed. In the Sullivan case that I talked to you about with Uber, where he is being charged criminally, he paid the hackers off through their bug bounty program. But he tried to go to his bug bounty provider and they rejected it. So he directly paid them through a makeup bug bounty program inside of Uber instead of a third party bug bounty program. And that's been lost in the translation in a lot of these articles. People are saying bug bounty is going to go away because of Joe Sullivan case. And I'm like, no, actually, if you go follow the trail, they did what they were supposed to. Something smelled fishy. They didn't want to pay the bounty. So they didn't. And so Joe ended up having it paid directly through his company. Now, all of these decisions were made by his general counsel who are claiming it wasn't. So they're trying to put Joe in jail for this. Thanks for listening to part one of our podcast with Deb Radcliffe. And tune into part two when Deb discusses the hacking profession, the challenges of being a CISO, ransomware, IoT, and gives us a glimpse of her book trilogy. Until next time.